I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. As we celebrate June as Black Music Month, a conversation in this hour for the hour about one of the most iconic figures in all of black music history, Paul Robeson. His voice resonated not only through his powerful singing, but also through his unwavering commitment to civil rights and social justice. I am honored and delighted to have Columbia professor Dr. Shauna L. Redmond uh, on in this hour, who's authored a text about Paul Robeson, and she joins us today for a conversation about the ultimate Renaissance man, Paul Robeson. Professor Redmond, good to have you back on the program. How are you today? Thank you for having me. I'm just fine. Good to uh, have you on for the hour because uh, it, it, it takes more than an hour <laughs> to do justice uh, to the legacy of Paul Robeson. I, I was thinking walking in the studio this morning an hour or so ago, um, how one even approaches a subject uh, as big, as massive, as comprehensive as Paul Robeson. So let me put you on the spot. Since you wrote the book, Everything Man, The Form and Function of Paul Robeson, if you were in my chair, uh, commencing a conversation about Paul Robeson, where would you begin? Because that's where we're going to begin. <laughs> <laughs> it is a really difficult question. I mean, I, I guess I would just say to jump in anywhere, any subsection of his life is going to be spectacular. So I don't think there's any bad start. Yeah. Um, let me start with this then. Why? Um, first of all, let me get Miles on the phone with you right quick. We, uh, your phone sounds a little, little funny to me. And uh, one, I want to do justice to, to Paul Robeson uh, for this hour. Uh, and it's going to be difficult to do that if uh, if we got a phone line that's cutting in and out. So let's get that addressed first. But I said moments ago that, to my mind, Paul Robeson is the greatest Renaissance man in the history of black America and may very well be the greatest Renaissance American, period. And uh, that's putting a lot out there. And I don't I don't say that lightly. But but I ask you to consider a single American male who was more Renaissance than Paul Robeson. I mean, think about all that Robeson did, accomplished, all the lanes he ran in, literally and figuratively. And if you don't know the backstory of Robeson, we'll unpack some of that here in a few moments with uh, Dr. Redmond. But it's hard to think, uh, for me at least, of any American male who has been more renaissance than Paul Robeson. That is certainly the case inside of black America. I've had any number of conversations about who the ultimate black renaissance woman would be, and that might be Maya Angelou. Uh, I'd have to go with Maya Angelou as the ultimate renaissance black female. There's no question about it at all. The Robeson is uh, without, without equal, without comparison, the ultimate uh, renaissance man in the history of black America and maybe the nation uh, writ large. Uh, Dr. Rebin is back. Hopefully, hopefully this phone line sounds a little bit better. So let, let me start with that question I, I posed a moment ago. Um, for you, um, why spend so much time dissecting the work, the witness, the life and legacy of Paul Robeson? I'm always fascinated by why scholars choose to spend time doing what they do. For you, why Paul Robeson? I think there are a lot of reasons. One one is that he allows me to study the entire world. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that's underappreciated about his impact and his legacy is that he touched down literally and figuratively in every 
place on planet Earth during the course of his lifetime, which wasn't exceptionally long. Mm. But through his commitments, his political investments, his ability to build community through his recordings and his stage presence, his films, I mean, his audience could be counted in the millions, quite literally, and was at a time the most famous person in the world, not just black person, but the most famous person in the world. And this is something that his mentor, W.E.B. Du Bois, the eminent sociologist, activist, and author documented more than once, especially during the course of, of the many moments of public trial that he faced, Robeson faced over his lifetime, um, that he was the most widely known person in the entire world. So there's the opportunity for me to study many different tongues, many different cultures, and and to try and think about power on a really sizable scale. Mm. More personally, a reason that I study him is because he challenges me to live my convictions. Mm. This is someone who lost everything for what he believed in and for the communities that he saw himself belonging to, that he supported and lived through. And so just on a personal level, studying him really returns me to my convictions, returns me to the reasons why I do this work, because it's not always, it's not always supported. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's important for me to have these, this mentor, even if it's someone who passed before I was born, someone who now lives in a longer legacy to which I can, I can now um, pay attention and count myself a minor part. Nope. As we say around here, we got a lot to talk about. This is going to be a rich hour. There's a lot to unpack in this hour. Um, you've already said so much that's worth interrogating. Let me start with this right quick before I move forward. Um, what was it like? What is it like uh, to have been the most famous person in the world as a black man then? It's tremendous in so many ways, but it's also harrowing. I mean, he, um, facial and name recognition preceded him everywhere yes. he went. I'm sorry, Professor. I, I, mean, I, didn't mean to, I didn't mean to step on you. Go ahead, finish your point. I'm sorry. Um, so he was able to take the stage in any place that he landed. He was able to gather audiences everywhere he went. He was faced with accolades and many different kinds of reception from dignitaries, from politicians, the elite, but was quickly coming into his political consciousness such Mm -hmm. that those were not the people that he was most interested in interacting with by the middle and late 1930s. And so for those reasons in which he started to take advantage of the other opportunities available to him because of his prestige, being able to study, being able to access people like Jomo Kenyatta and Kwame Nkrumah, whom he met in London in the 1930s, these independence icons of colonized Kenya, colonized Ghana. Because of that kind of about face and his public turns in print as he's writing the 1930s and describing himself first and foremost as an African, Mm. that fame also meant that he was under incredible scrutiny and faced the most tremendous backlash because of what people wanted him to be, right? He was, an, he was a fantastic artist. People wanted him to, you know, similar to athletes and artists of today, shut up and play, shut up and sing, mm. right? Not to talk about the political investments that were developing in him, not to talk about the oppressed. 
um, but really just to take his paycheck and run. And because he was making that turn very relatively quickly within his career, within the first decade of his career, he made a very determined and deliberate pivot away from the elite cultures that had originally supported his career, there was a tremendous amount of backlash. So it worked both ways. It fattened his pockets and grew his acclaim to be the most famous black man in all the world, but it also made him an incredible target. Mm. There's a lot to talk about. As I said uh, moments ago, it's impossible to do justice to a conversation about ropes and even in one hour, uh, but we're going to do the best we can. Uh, you cannot celebrate June as Black Music Month and overlook Paul Robeson, and we are not going to overlook Paul Robeson. We'll continue when we come forward. Dr. Shana L. Redman of Columbia, author of the book Everything Man, The Form and Function of Paul Robeson. You're listening to Dr. Redman right now on KBLA Talk. Man in the history of this republic. Uh, and uh, our guest, Dr. Shana L. Redman, uh, just calls him Everything Man. What a great title for a book about Robeson, Everything Man, the form and function of Paul Robeson. Uh, June is Black Music Month, and we're featuring a different artist every day on this program whose music we play for all three hours, but uh, we wanted to make sure that we spent an hour uh, in this month, on this day, uh, offering tribute to the late, great Paul Robeson for what he did on the stage and beyond. And we'll get to more of that as we move through this hour with our guest, again, Columbia's uh, Dr. Shauna L. Redman. Um, you and I were talking uh, not long ago, Dr. Redman, and I, and I said to you that I, I've had the, the great honor uh, in my life of having befriended both Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte, uh, both now gone. Uh, uh, Mr. Poitier and I had lunch together every other Thursday, every other Tuesday, rather, for almost 27 years, every other Tuesday. We'd meet uh, here for lunch with a couple of friends of ours at the Four Seasons Hotel. Uh, and did that for over 25 years. And uh, so many of, of uh, those conversations um, I hold on to uh, to this very day. Mr. B, Mr. Belafonte, uh, I was honored to befriend and we spent a lot of time together and indeed traveled the world together. Uh, Mr. B and I did uh, in a variety of places from Haiti to Venezuela and beyond. Uh, but I was fortunate to, again, have the honor in, in my life of, of knowing both of them. I raised that because you could not talk to Sidney Poitier you could not talk to Harry Belafonte for more than 10 to 15 minutes without them raising the name of their mentor, Paul Robeson. So I'm, I'm, I was always, I mean, I, I feel like I, I have inhabited some of Robeson's space, as it were, uh, because I've been in the orbit of one Belafonte and Portier and just learned so much about Robeson directly from two of his students, uh, Portier and Belafonte. Moments ago in this conversation, you mentioned Robeson's mentor, W.E.B. Du Bois. So I wonder then if you might talk about the relationship between Robeson and Du Bois. Sure. Um, I'll just say on, on the Poitier and, and Belafonte note that, you know, one of the one of the kind of green lights that I had or that I understood um, in, in moving this project forward came from Mr. Belafonte when I heard him speak as a graduate student and he described himself as a Robeson disciple. Mm. And that was deeply, deeply meaningful for me as I was doing this work, uh, you know, around a person who has, has continued to be in, in many respects so vilified through like deep erasure and, and intentional forgetting 
Um, and I would add to that number two people like Lorraine Hansberry, who wrote for his journal Freedom Ways as a young writer in New York City, Ozzie Davis, of course. And Ozzie Davis has this quote about Paul saying that the question of Paul's identity is not facetious or academic to black people. Rather, it is urgent and fundamental, a matter of life and death. Mm. And that, to me, just struck really at the heart of how people received him and how people who we know and revere from stage and screen felt about this person who, by the time of their ascendance in the 1960s, was already um, labeled a traitor to the state and driven underground. Um, but his relationship to W.E.B. Boys is a really profound one. He marks himself and describes himself as his student constantly, that Du Bois was his mentor. He taught him both about kind of the political ways of the world, but also taught him how to be a public intellectual, which was something that was deeply significant for Robeson. Like I mentioned, having started this magazine journal called Freedom Ways, for which Lorraine Hansberry was a writer, um, writing about mine workers in South Africa writing about African decolonization, which was kind of the central pillar of the Freedom Ways mission. Um, and so Du Bois really having already stepped out and lived a very public life by the time Robeson gained public ascendance in the middle and late 1920s became this iconic father figure for Robeson. Robeson was, was very close to his own father who was a preacher mm. and um, his father had him at an older age and passed away right before um, Robeson graduated college. And so he came to mature adulthood looking for mentors in ways that that was now absent to him because he lost his father and had lost his mother at a ver as a very young child. So Du Bois steps in to be kind of a father figure, but one who is robustly knowledgeable of the world in ways that Robeson was eager for. He wanted to be a global citizen, and Du Bois was kind of a perfect mentor in guiding him through that practice. Mm. How much do we know about about uh, the pain, I presume, uh, or uh, assume, the, the pain that Du Bois felt watching the trials and travails of his student, Paul Robeson? It was deeply significant, and he wrote about it on many occasions. There were um, those moments where he was talking about Robeson's fame, and he has a line in which he's discussing Robeson as the most famous man in the world. It's only within his native country that he is erased and defamed, um, that, he has, that he is essentially persona non grata. Mm -hmm. He also engaged in a very public debate in Negro Digest with Walter White, um, in the 1950s, when Robeson was under intense fire um, for his peace and anti-colonial agenda and civil rights agenda, and his passport was revoked, which happened in 1950, um, Du Bois and Walter White both took to the pages of Negro Digest to debate right or wrong, and Du Bois was on the side of Robeson being absolutely right, and Walter White, head of the NAACP, was on the side of Robeson being absolutely wrong, even as Walter White in those very same pages is extolling him for all of his incredible talents, his fine intellect. He was a Phi Beta Kappa scholar, Rutgers valedictorian, all while being an all-American football player, et cetera, et cetera. But when it came to this political issue, particularly on his unwillingness to throw communism and communist movements under the bus, to sacrifice them on the steps of the U.S. government, on that issue, 
people broke ranks and and there was a split in kind of the black public in intelligentsia around his stand on the Soviet Union on people's socialist movements. And so this is where a lot of the debate took place. You mentioned earlier, and I want to come back to this, I don't want to get too far afield, that Robeson was unapologetically public uh, about being African first. Um, Unpack that for me. I, I can only assume that being so bold and so out front about being African first had some sort of impact. But you tell me. Yeah, I mean, it, this is him writing in a London newspaper as early as 1935 and saying, I am not an African-American. I am an African. I am descended of these people whose cultures are great, who built civilization, in fact. And so while he's in London, where he spent most of the 1930s, um, growing his stardom as Joe in the show, in the musical Showboat, the, mm-hmm. an earlier song he played, Old Man River, his standard. Um, while he's there doing that work, he's also writing for public media and doing interviews and talking about the virtues and deep intellectual commitments and contributions of African cultures. And he came to this idea through music, actually. And so a lot of my work is trying to really return us to his voice, which is multitudinous. But the moment of him identifying as an African came from an encounter he had with a dock worker in London, an Igbo man who was working along the docks, as a lot of African immigrants to the city did at the time. And he was singing a song that Robeson recognized. He recognized it as one that his father had sung to him. And in approaching this worker, the worker described the song to him and where it came from. It came from the Igbo cultures of Nigeria. And this is when Robeson begins to identify his own genealogy in West Africa and comes to be a very public advocate and activist around these identifications and identifies first and for the rest of his life as an African. Mm. Um, how did the good white folk regard or not regard his being so bold about being African first? There was a lot of, of um, finger wagging and are you sure you want to do this kinds of white patronage that attended to this moment. Mm-hmm. Again, this is the 1930s. He's building his stardom. He's starring in films, some number of which are being shot and bankrolled by European nations who are still deeply, deeply invested in their colonial enterprises in Africa. And so those kinds of conflicts and the conflicts that arose at the moment at which many of his films are released. So there are a number of films, Sanders of the River and others, where he plays an African in the film. And his point in doing the work was actually to show the vital cultures of African peoples and to use that work to to supplement his political, public political work. When the films are released, they're often cut and edited in a way that ended up reinforcing stereotypes around African cultures as backward, as illiterate, and all of these things that he's raging against. And so Robeson becomes one of the first major film stars to boycott his own films Mm. because (laughs) he is wanting to decry the kinds of representations that they ultimately come to document. And so he, he both boycotts them and then takes periodic hiatuses away from the film industry, recognizing that it is not actually the medium that's going to get him closest 
to true and accurate documentation of African life and culture. I'm, I'm, I'm stunned by this. Um, I'm sure the audience is as well. W- what happens to a black man when he boycotts, has, has, has the temerity to boycott his own films because he didn't like the way that they'd edited uh, edited the, the project uh, and presented him on the screen? What, what, you, what happens to you when you boycott your own film? Well, you absolutely lose jobs, yeah. right? And the industry takes marked notice of his refusals. Um, I mean, he had tried at, at different stages to purchase the original films back from the filmmakers as a means of limiting their distribution, but to the extent that he was not allowed to do so, either financially or through other kind of industry powers, he would publicly boycott them, and they obviously took grand offense at that, and Sometimes it drove traffic to the film to know, well, how horrible was it? But oftentimes it was pulling funds, pulling attention away from the filmmakers. And so he started to lose jobs, but also, more importantly, started to refuse jobs, right? There were, he, would, he just had a very um, stringent practice for evaluating which roles he would take and which he wouldn't. Yeah. When we come forward after news, traffic and sports and continue this rich conversation with, uh, with Columbia University's Dr. Shauna L. Redmond uh, talking about her book, Everything Man, the form and function of Paul Robeson as we celebrate Paul Robeson here in June, Black Music Month. There are a couple of things she said that I want to um, unpack with her in a moment here. One is this notion of prestige. Uh, I, I, I'm curious as to what she thinks that the takeaways are for how those of us who have some prestige as black folk in America use that prestige? How do we wear that garment with Paul Robeson as a model, number one? And clearly, uh, Robeson was the, the, the object, the subject of the normative white gaze, and yet he wasn't, you know, he wasn't, uh, he didn't dance uh, to their music. You know, he didn't laugh when it wasn't funny, he didn't scratch uh, when he wasn't itching but he was clearly the subject of the normative white gaze. And I want to talk about that as well and what we take away from the model of Paul Ropes and a great deal more to get to when we come forward with Dr. Shauna L. Redman on KBLA Talk 1580. The station you turn to when you've had it up to here with cultural incompetence. KBLA Talk 1580. The voice of Paul Robeson, who we are celebrating in this hour. June is Black Music Month and uh, we're spending an hour talking about the greatness of this iconic artist and renaissance man, Paul Robeson. Our guest is Dr. Shauna L. Redman of Columbia University, who has written a powerful text about Robeson called Everything Man. Love that title. Everything Man, the form and function of Paul Robeson. Um, before I get to those questions I said I wanted to get to uh, after news, traffic, and sports, Professor Redman, let me just start by asking, and I'm not naive in asking this, but why do you think all these years later, Robeson has still not gotten the respect he deserves. That's a long time um, to uh, to be erased, as you as you put it earlier. I, I mean, I think there's a, a question of of what we are looking for as far as his resonances, his his traces. I mean, I think there are very clear reasons why the federal government has just, in the last generation or so, started to acquiesce to public demand for more of his appearance, for some res- putting some respect on his name mm-hmm. um, since his you know, impact is globally um, apparent. Why not in these United States? Why do we not have more attention paid to him? There is now a, a federal stamp. It took many years and 
hundreds of people organizing around the country, organizing petition campaigns in order for that to become the case that we now have this stamp. Um, but he is present in all of these other ways. He's present in the ways that mattered most to him, which is at the very local level, communities taking up his name and his mission, his commitments in ways that are marked by his appearance as trees or his appearance as as kind of the named um, element or inspiration behind high schools, community centers, arts and performing space, performance spaces. So he does appear in all of these ways. But I think in the United States in particular, it, it is very localized and it takes commitment and organizing in order for that to happen. And think, those are things that he respects. And I think that he would want and anticipate in the rest of the world. There are streets named after him. In Berlin, there are streets. In London, there are theaters. He's marked at the London School of, of um, Oriental Studies, right, formerly named Element Oriental Studies Institution, where he's an alum. There are all of these fantastic ways that he's marked in other parts of the world. He's deeply preserved in Wales because he was so revered by the miners of that nation. But it's in the United States where he attends to smaller scale community-based projects in ways that take a bit more digging. Mm. You said something in this conversation uh, that I found profound. Well, everything you say is profound, but you said something earlier in this conversation that I want to come back to, because I think it's the ultimate compliment that one can give to anyone. Uh, In your case, it's a compliment um, to Paul Robeson. I feel the same way about MLK. Others who are listening, I'm sure, have their own persons who they would put in this frame. But you suggested earlier that one of the reasons why you so uh, adore Paul Robeson and took the time to write this book about him is because Robeson encourages you. He, he is a model uh, that inspires you to live by the courage of your convictions. I, I can't think of higher praise for anyone that they inspire us. Uh, they motivate, motivate us to, to, to live by the courage of our convictions. Which leads me to ask you the following. What do you think that Robeson says to black folk in late modernity? What's he say to us in real time about how we process, how we use, how we frame the prestige that some of us have? I think there are a couple of things that he said and modeled throughout his career that still hold true today. I don't think he would say much different than what he said during his lifetime, first of which being that he understood himself as completely unexceptional. Mm. He was insistent upon the fact that he came from communities of thought and talent far greater than his own. It was only due to luck and opportunity that he was able to exhibit those talents for a wider audience, but that there were many more after him, many more just like him, even in excess of him, which is hard to believe. I mean, this is a person who played in the early NFL while he was getting his law school degree at Columbia University, while he was beginning his stage career at the YMCA and the Negro Theater in Harlem, all of these things concurrently, and we know who he became on a global scale, but he insisted every day of his life, that he was unexceptional, but also that he belonged to someone. And in that belonging, he was accountable to them. And I think those are the elements that have to really be at the core of any public life that is not just a life of service as grand and and as important as it is, 
but it is a life that is deeply committed to the folks around him, to bringing people with him, right? Poitiers, Belafonte, Avi Davis, Lorraine Hansberry, all of these people now whose names we know, but hundreds and thousands of others whose names we don't know, right, who fell at his feet because he was open to them and was available to them, and that's the other element of it. So a commitment, a fidelity, but also an openness that I think is really difficult, especially in this day and age, for celebrities to accept that mm-hmm. we actually have to be, we, as if I'm one of them, mm-hmm. that celebrities have to actually be available and open to their people, allow them to know them so that they can know them back. And this is something that he would do without question. If people asked him to sing, folks would say, in his home, on the block, coming off the plane, he would sing improvisatory offerings and concerts incessantly, right? That this kind of openness made people fall in love with him. And this is how he protected himself even when the federal government came his way. Well, you, you are a celebrity scholar, so in your own lane, uh, you're, you're, pretty, you're pretty highly regarded. So uh, I, I uh, just wanted to, want, wanted to underscore that. When we come forward, now we've talked about how we, how we use or handle the prestige that some of us have uh, in, uh, in this moment. Uh, I want to come to that notion of the normative white gaze. So for those of us who are seeking that white gaze or those of us who are the subject of that white gaze, uh, none of us have that in the way that Robeson had it on a global stage. And I wonder what... Uh, he models for us about how we navigate that. Uh, we'll talk about uh, this when we come forward with Dr. Shawn L. Redmond uh, celebrating Paul Robeson this hour on KBLA Talk 1580. Someone will beat the drum And love will be the golden key To the gates of a kingdom come um, what does Robeson uh, model for us about how we go about seeking or being the subject of, to the extent that uh, people want that, um, this normative white gaze? He 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 was um, under the spotlight uh, for many years uh, on a global stage, and yet one of the things I love about him is that he never seemed to be um, uh, he didn't he didn't move funny. Uh, if I can put it that way, because of that normative white gaze. So what's he model for us about how to navigate that? I think he he is very clear throughout his career about understanding its seductions, Mm -hmm. the seductions of power, the seductions of white celebration and acceptance. But in knowing those things, he was deeply critical and suspicious of it. And he understood it was a ruse, that there were other means of getting by other means of producing great work, other communities of of thought that were more worthy of our attention and our resources. He understood that he was expending energy in the building of this career. And where did he want that energy to go? That it was not only the white elite who could make him famous. He knew that his audiences would ultimately be the oppressed workers, decolonizing people's civil rights audiences, those are the people who sustained him, especially during those years where he was hunted by the U.S. federal government. And so he made very deliberate choices to align with those communities, no matter what consequences would come his way from the elite. And that was what kept him safe. Where did he find the courage, the the conviction, the, the commitment, the, the, the character 
to walk away from the elite. Um, it's a whole lot easier said than done. It is. I mean, a lot of it he attributed to his father, right? The kinds of ethics and morals that he was raised with, his father having been someone who guided him with a very strong and clear moral compass. But also it was these movement communities to which he attached himself. It was knowing Nkrumah and Kenyatta. It was knowing the civil rights leaders in the United States, Ewart Guineer, who would go on to Harvard but began as a labor leader. All of these movements that actually provided him a sense of security and community. He knew that even as the federal government was after him, even as British authorities were trailing him as early as the 1930s, he was under surveillance by the FBI, CIA, and the MI5. He knew that the hundreds and thousands of people with whom he was struggling were far more powerful than any of those forces. And so he sought solace and community in those areas. And in committing to them, they committed to him in turn and raised fantastic campaigns in the 1950s to reinstate his passport. And after eight years, a long time, but nonetheless, he was victorious in that return. And it was due to the communities and commitments that he had made decades prior, those people who stuck with him his entire life. How did Robeson process, uh, as you put it earlier, being regarded, uh, being treated, maltreated, as it were, as a traitor to the state and having his career driven underground. Um, How did he process? How did he navigate that? He understood that he was under assault for his commitment to a decolonial world, Mm. that because he wanted people to be free, he had to be detained, that in disallowing his travel, They were attempting to keep him from his communities, the communities who needed him most, but also the communities that were building a global revolution. I mean, during the 1950s, he was an invited participant to the Bandung Conference in 1955, which was the largest gathering of colonized and formerly colonized black and brown nations in the global south that had ever happened. Mm -hmm. But he couldn't travel. He couldn't physically be there because his passport had been revoked. So he understood the rationale behind it, and he made it explicit. There was no clipped tongue about him, even as he was detained in the United States. And he also exhibited fantastic resistance to that detention. So, for example, twice singing at the Washington State-Canadian border and singing over the border to his Canadian audiences in defiance of the federal Mm -hmm. government and their passport restriction. Mm. So he went through all of these creative maneuvers, of course, with his recordings as well, to ensure that his voice was still circulating. And in each moment, he was defiant against that state and encouraged his audiences to do their part to insist upon a free and just world. The ultimate irony, it seems to me, uh, about Paul Robeson is simply this, and I want to get Professor Redmond's take when, uh, on it when we come forward in our remaining moments with her. On the one hand, I cannot think of any person in this country, certainly not an African-American, who was more vilified than Robeson on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, as I said earlier, he is the ultimate Renaissance man. The ultimate Renaissance man, no competition there. And on the other hand, more vilified about uh, the great Paul Robeson. So I, I said a moment ago, uh, uh, Professor Redmond, that uh, to my mind, at least, I can't 
think of anybody else who fits in this frame. Uh, the frame of being the most vilified black man in, in the history of this republic on the one hand, and on the other hand, rising to be the ultimate renaissance man, uh, I believe this country's produced. That's a fascinating duality to me. What do you make of it? Yeah, I, I don't know of anyone else who has been so incredibly adored and so trenchantly vilified. Mm. I think he really is um, kind of the the archetypal figure of that in U.S. history, especially. Um, but I think the way that he survived it and the reason we still talk about him is because he was steadfast in what he believed, that he would not allow fame nor violence to move him from his convictions. He said he was not raised that way, that he would change his opinions like the weather, and one of my favorite lines of his is him talking about his positions and saying, there is no force on earth that will move me even one thousandth of an inch. He was absolutely committed. And I think that that kind of integrity is rare in this, especially in these political moments where we're, we're meant to move towards compromise and all of these things that under the right terms are appropriate and necessary. In certain cases, they, however, are not. And he was, he was deeply understanding and committed to thinking those moments through, to strategizing, to being thoughtful about those moments where one had to dig deep and plant themselves where they stood. And because he was able to do that, people knew they could rely on him. And under those circumstances, he was always going to have a loving community, a beloved community, in fact, around him. And that is what fortified him. That's what allowed him to continue and to move forward after the reinstatement of his passport into his, his retirement and continued to allow him to be sought after by Belafonte Poitier and this new vanguard of artists, activists, who would become our icons and models. Nobody like him. Nobody like him. Uh, what a wonderful hour in tribute to Paul Robeson uh, and no better person uh, to uh, lead us in that tribute than Columbia's Dr. Shana L. Redman. Her book on Robeson is entitled Everything Man, The Form and Function of Paul Robeson. Everything Man, The Form and Function of Paul Robeson. Uh, I've enjoyed this immensely. Professor Redman, thank you for your time. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. Hour three of Tavis Smiley after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.